0: The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, is a spiritual, a song sung by an enslaved people in an early America, a song sung by people who were displaced from their country of Africa. A song sung by a people who were often severed and separated permanently from their families. A song sung by people working in oppressive conditions which no OSHA inspector would ever dare allow. A song sung by slaves. Some more fortunate slaves were purchased by kind slave owners. But many... Many were at the mercy of tyrant masters and mistresses. Thomas Brown, after his being set free from slavery, recalls what happened to him in his attempt to escape the scorn of a hateful master. I was severely punished by a board cut full of holes. As I was hit with the board, the board was intended with those holes to raise blisters on my skin. Then I was whipped with a strap to burst the blisters open. Then those blisters were salted and peppered. This burned me very badly. And I never tried to run away again. Bill Collins reports, my master was so cruel to us slaves that he was almost crazy at times. He would buckle us across a log and whip us until we were unable to walk for about three days. On Sunday, we all would go to the barn and pray to God to fix some way for us to be freed from our mean master. June the 19th, 1863, has now been named an official national holiday called Juneteenth. And it was a day in which two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation declaring an enslaved person free, federal troops arrived on June 19th, 1863 in Texas To bring force to the last state that was practicing slavery. Setting around a quarter of a million slaves finally free. Juneteenth marks the official end to slavery. As Bill Collins made his way each Sunday to the barn... To take his eyes off of his mean master and fix his eyes upon a merciful God, God had fixed a way for the Bill Collinses of the world to be set free. A human being who had no recourse, who had no rights, went to the barn as their master probably left the plantation to make his appearance at a possibly Presbyterian church. Bill cried out in a human barn, Swing low, sweet chariot. Humans who had no dignity, no future, sang huddled in a hot field, coming for to carry me home. We can't begin to know this degree of oppression, of being treated as an object. We can't begin to know the degree of confusion as watching your master dress up and head to church after beating his property to a pulp. We can't even begin to know the degree of desperation and wondering, when is the suffering going to end? We can't know that. But, we have sitting among us, each of us, some tastes Of injustice. Some of us were abused or neglected physically, emotionally, sexually, as adults or as kids, by those who had authority over us. Some of us sitting here have known the confusion when people who claimed to be Christians betrayed us worse than our worst enemy some of us know what it's like to be a desperate people who are wondering in our difficult circumstances, is this suffering ever going to come to an end? So today, we meet the psalmist in a barn singing a spiritual. The fourth of the Psalms of Ascent. In Psalm 120, the people of God made their way from a faraway place toward Jerusalem. In Psalm 121, as they made their way, they called upon a God to keep them safe in Psalm 121. And in Psalm 122, they gladly got to that place of peace, that place of worship, Jerusalem. And now in Jerusalem, potentially, they're hearing the voice of a bully oppressor saying, it's all for nothing, you good for nothing a reading from the book of psalms psalm 123 a song of ascent to you i lift up my eyes o you who are enthroned in the heavens behold as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud God, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. Saints and friends, when we are faced with injustice, with unfair and undeserved suffering, what do we as Westerners, as Americans, tend to do? We take matters into our own hands. We make our own rules rules. We write our own legislation, we hire a lawyer, we gather a band of supporters, we wave a huge flag, but what if you had nothing? What if you had no money, no resources? Even worse, you were considered socially the lowest caste and class of people. You were hated and disregarded by the people around you. What would you do then? Some believe this psalm was written around the time of Nehemiah, when God's exiled, scattered people are returning once again upon God's direction to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Some of the language in this psalm parallels that seen in Nehemiah, where God's people were constructing walls as the inhabitants of the land were mocking them. We're jeering at them. We're telling them they were rats that needed to go back to the sewers. How hard it would be as you're building that wall and listening to those voices not to believe what they're saying. How hard it would be not to want to just give up in building and go back to your foreign yet familiar land. How hard it would be not to take one of those bricks and launch it at the mouth of the man calling your child a bastard or calling your wife a whore. You just want to throw it at them. The psalmist redirects our natural responses to injustice of taking matters into our own hands. What does he invite us to do instead? He reminds us to fix Our eyes on the Lord God, the master of mercy. And as our eyes are fixed on him, friends, saints, we become more and more like him. We become more and more like our master. As we put our eyes on the Lord God, our master of mercy, we become more like our master in two ways. This psalm tells us. The first way we become more like our master is that submission starts to become sweet. See that in verses 1 and 2. The second way we become more like our master is that mercy and justice meet. Submission becomes sweet, number one, and mercy and justice meet, number two. First, submission becomes sweet. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And notice the posture of this seemingly enslaved psalmist. What is he doing? He's looking up to the God who is in the heavens. To the God who sits on a throne. To the president of the universal united state of everything. Locking eyes with his master. Locking eyes on her mistress. Like a long staring contest. What happens when you look attentively at someone for a long time? You begin to see more clearly who they really are. And this is what the psalmist is seeing. The Lord God, the maker of all things, as he really is. As the Lord described himself to Moses, when Moses asked him, who are you? I want to see you in Exodus 34. What is the very first descriptor that this awesome, mighty, powerful God who made everything gives to describe Himself? I am the Lord, the Lord, who will kick you in the teeth and whip you to shreds because you sinned against Me. Is that what He says about Himself? No! The first descriptor he gives is, I am the Lord, the Lord, full of mercy and compassion and kindness. If the first thing the Lord wants us to know about him is that he is merciful and kind, then what does that do to your interest in serving this master? It makes us way more willing to submit to him. Submission. The posture of willingly yielding to an authority or force greater than us. It's not out of fear. It's not out of humiliation. It's out of sweet kindness when we see him as a kind and merciful God, when we see that as being the top of his list of attributes, the first thing he says about himself, we then see his law, his word, his way of life, even the hard circumstances surrounding us as kindness, as a mercy. And we serve him not in oppression, but rather in joy in all circumstances. Particularly when the world around us says the exact opposite. When the world around us says, Eyes off of God, onto yourself. That master, he's not kind and merciful. He's just mean and suppressing. The world around us says, Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Don't listen to his oppressive ways. And we even now have a month and a flag to celebrate it. We call it pride. In your face, oppressive God, we don't need your law, your order, your ways here. We'll do it our way. And the psalmist, as they're seeing the world look as if they've got it made, And they're hearing their enemy's voice saying to them, you should be ashamed of yourself. The psalmist fixes their eyes on God's face to show them, how do I respond to this brutality? How do I respond to this cruelty? How do I respond to this hate around me? They're waiting for a cue of God's kindness. This is our prayer posture, friends. This is our worship posture. Sweet watchfulness for the mercy of God to move His hand and tell us what to do as servants. Because you're kind. Some hard questions we need to ask ourselves today. And the first one why isn't submission to a merciful and kind God sweet to you? Why isn't submission sweet? Well, do do you prefer like me to be the CEO of your own life? Making your own rules, setting your own bottom lines? Do you project onto God your father, your earthly father? A tyrant, alcoholic master who is anything but kind? Is that what you see when you look at him? Then I encourage you to remember the Old Testament. And a people who were given laws by a kind God to help them flourish in life. To look to the Old Testament and see a God who could have easily washed his hands of a rebellious people over and over and over again. But instead kept going the furthest distance by sending mercy down and finally giving them Jesus. Stop telling yourself he's not good. And start staring at his word which shows us otherwise that he is kind, he is merciful. Second question I want to ask us is, what would make submission sweeter for you? Funny thing about submission is that it's not sweet, usually, until you start to do it. Until you start submitting. As long as you're living impatiently on your own timeline of, of justice, your own agenda of doing things your way, you're missing out on the joy of submission. Because submission is about trust, about faith, about saying, Lord, I believe your way is the better way. Even when I can't see why or how, your way is the better way. Taking God at his word means trusting in faith. Your way is the better way. And it's a sweeter way. I remember how the Lord worked uh, to set my eyes on him in my later 20s. I was waiting and I was wanting to be married. Oh, so badly. And it was getting later and later in my 20s. I'm like, come on, I want to be married. But I wanted it to be on my terms. And so I found a person that I was on my terms. This is who I want to marry. And I pursued her. And I could clearly see this was not maybe the best relationship and how we communicate and how we work together. But you know what? No, this is what I want. This is what I want. I'm ready, dead set on marrying this woman. And I had my heart broken. And the year after the breakup was a really hard year. I lost a lot of weight. I was pretty depressed. But God used that time to set my sights on his kindness. And on his mercy. My eyes are on you now on this. Until you act. I'm not going to make this happen anymore. I'm not going to find my wife. You are going to act mercifully. And I remember the sound of Gabriel's oboe. If you know that song, it's a beautiful piece. But I remember the sound of Gabriel's oboe playing. And if you ever know an oboe sound, it's a piercing sound because it's going through this tiny reed. It's kind of a picture of suffering. An oboe is a narrow, tight reed. And it was a picture of how much I had felt life had gotten tighter and harder. But it was the most beautifully piercing sound as I listened to Gabriel's oboe and watched my bliss coming down the aisle. What a gift! As tears were streaming down my eyes, the photographer kept taking pictures of me because my veins are bulging out of my forehead because I'm crying in thanksgiving for God's kindness and God's mercy and not my own timing, not my own agenda. It was such a sweet gift of God's mercy. But not only does submission become sweet, friends, As we fix our eyes upon the master of mercy, we become like our master in this way. We become a person where justice and mercy meet together. Verses three to four. The psalmist three times begs, mercy, mercy, mercy. What is their circumstance? You see it here. Contempt, people who hate them. This isn't just people who are annoyed with them. This is people who hate them, coldly hate them. And then scorn, people who not only hate them, but cut at them with their eyes, with their scowling faces, with their piercing words, with their whips or their boards. And worse to the psalmist, they're getting away with it. Their lives are at ease. They're doing well in this world. Oh, Women's, women and daughters. I don't know your experience in junior high and high school, but I'm assuming, based on a musical that was created a couple years ago, you've had mean girls. Girls can be mean, right? And the worst was when these mean girls were the teacher's favorite, right? And they they had all the friends and all the popularity. Didn't seem right. Guys, sons, you've had jerks or bullies as classmates. And the worst, the worst was when they were the homecoming king or the valedictorian. They're at ease. They're doing well. Movies from the 80s were all about this. Like the Karate Kid or the Netflix sequel Cobra Kai which illustrates the interplay between jerks and victims, between mean girls and their prey. So what happens to our view of these people who are deserving of judgment when we fix our eyes on our master? Mercy and justice marry. They get married. The psalmist is not asking for justice for the people who are wronging them. I think that's really curious. Why isn't the psalmist saying, send down hellfire on them? Because no one, no one would ever stand to stare at a holy God asking only for justice. Would we? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing the perfection of a holy God in light of your own unholy state and sin and saying, let me have it, give it to me. We would never do that. You have been shown mercy and kindness by him as he poured out his justice upon another, his son. The cross of Jesus is the place where God's need for justice and your need for mercy meet, intersect, right there. And if that's been given to you, why would you believe it should not be extended to someone else undeserving? That's what got Jesus in so much trouble as a minister. He stood at the intersection of justice and mercy. You can't have an eye on mercy without the other eye on justice. And those who were crying out for justice upon the bad people of the day didn't at all see their need for mercy. Didn't see their sickness. But those who were crying out for mercy knew how bad a shape they were in. How they deserved God's justice and knew that mercy was the only ground they had to stand upon. Jesus was attacked by the religious leaders because he spent his time with pitiful people, not merciless people. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders because he dared to call out the mean girls and the bullies for who they really were. Sick and pathetic souls forgiveness, friends. The kind mercy of God is the place where justice and mercy meet. The more we set our eyes upon the Lord God, the master of mercy, the more we see our sin and our salvation. We've been forgiven such a great debt. We deserved separation from God. We deserved hell, but he showed us kindness at the intersection of justice and mercy. And the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the more we will lay down our swords of attack on other people and be people where justice and mercy meet. What does that look like for us, to be people who have this intersection of justice and mercy We get low to raise others' eyes on the kindness of God. Some examples I wanted to give you. It's calling out a friend for a particular sin. Not because you want to let them have it. That's justice. But because you want them to experience the sweetness of God's forgiveness. That's mercy. It's coming upon a mean girl or a bully boy and absorbing their sin willingly as an act of sacrificial love. When they sin against you. This isn't being a doormat, by the way. It's taking up a cross. Because people who are doormats are afraid of bullies and mean girls. That's not what this is. People who take up a cross, turn another cheek while looking their enemy in the eye. That's boldness. That's justice and mercy meeting it's reaching out a hand of help to someone who the world has demoted spending time with them at the cost of your reputation or your pocketbook when their shame is put upon you and your kindness is extended to them that's where justice and mercy meets this is the true nature of our master whose kind eyes saw a people full of contempt toward him they were scorning him from the cross from their easy chairs believing they were right and he was wrong. And what did he say? What did the intersection of mercy and justice say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Close with this. This week I listened to a podcast which uses research to demonstrate some of the inner workings of one of the most impressive works of creation known to man. The Human Brain. It's a podcast called Hidden Brain, and the episode was called The Power of Mercy. And in it, a research psychologist named Charlotte, uh, let's see if I can pronounce it, Wittviliot, was interviewed for her work on the role forgiveness played on improving brain and body functioning. And one of the things I found most fascinating about the research was the three-step process that was involved in how they measured or encouraged people toward forgiveness. I want you to do this with me this morning, and I want you to think about a person you have a really, really hard time forgiving. Well, forgiveness, she said, is a moral response to a relationship breach. A moral response to a relational breach. And this is what they would encourage the participants in their study to do. And I want you to do it as well. First, they would encourage the offended person, the victim, to think about the person who committed the wrong as a vulnerable human being. As a precious human being. To think about them that way. Second, They wouldn't ignore justice. They would encourage the offended person to think on the heinousness of the wrong that was done by this person. They thought of that too. Vulnerable human being, horrible offense. They hung on to both of them. And finally, they would encourage the victim, the offended, to offer this vulnerable person who offended them the gift of releasing them from their wrong. That was the process. What I found most impactful about this podcast was when the host, someone who clearly didn't understand the mercy of God, asked Charlotte how her faith played a role in this research. He said, I know you're a daughter of a pastor and your husband's a pastor. How did that play a role in your research? And here's what she said. Listen to these words. I've been shaped by a gospel that takes very seriously injustice And the cause of the oppressed. And the importance of having justice and mercy meet. They meet in a God who took on the fullness of pain and suffering. And is the one through whom all of that pain and suffering will be transformed. Where every tool that is a weapon of harm will be transformed into a tool of cultivation. That's what she said. We who are in Christ are now his tool. (laughs) We are the intersections of justice and mercy. We, all saints, need to have a willingness to take up the cause of the oppressed. And that's not just underprivileged people in our society. It's also those who are enslaved in their sin taking their relational breaches, the ways they've hurt us, looking to our master and responding in the same way of our master with forgiveness, with absorbing the weight of someone's awful sin against us. A sin that the psalmist said they've had their fill of and transforming that awful weight of sin into the gold of grace and mercy extended to them. Friends, put down the sword And allow God to turn it into a plow in your own heart. Changing you from the executor of justice to the one who absorbs an injustice. Moving you from not only being a recipient of God's mercy, but living as an extension of God's mercy. When we keep our eyes fixed on the master of mercy, we become more like our master. We live in submission to him that is sweet And we become a person and a place where grace and mercy and justice meet. This is a servant who looks more and more like the master of mercy, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, master of mercy the one we call upon every week, the one we say, have mercy upon us, O Lord, the one we confess our sin to every week as we rehearse the story of redemption. Why is it so hard for us to extend mercy outward? Do a work in our hearts and our minds, Father. Make us into people who submit to you and look to you to lead and guide us, not our own ways, not our own devices. Help us to Love submission to you, to find it sweet and joyful as Christ found it. And help us, Father, also to become people like our master, people who demonstrate what justice and mercy meet together looks like as we forgive those who hurt us, those who offend us, those who wrong us. Help us lay down our swords that you might cultivate in us grace and mercy. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.